0: Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. For the last time, John chapter 6 is where we are. Six messages in John 6. It's taken us a while to get through this. The beginning two messages were lengthy and were uh, a lot of text as we went through the feeding of the 5,000 and then we went through uh, walking on water and, and then we just had to hit the brakes because there was so much here that we needed to dive into. And uh, we have seen over the last three sermons a a picture of God's sovereignty, specifically in salvation, but over everything. This chapter is enormous, and, and we could be here for a lot longer. But what I wanted to do this morning was finish this chapter out because I think we have done what we needed to do in this chapter to open our eyes to understand the last part of this. And as we go through it, much of what we've already talked about will be ringing in your ears, Lord willing. And so we were able to kind of pick up this last portion in John 6 and finish it out. Huge chapter, not just only in length, but in gravity. Remember, at the beginning of this chapter, 5,000 men are fed. So probably around 20,000 people, a huge crowd who's following Jesus wants him to be king. And at the end of this chapter, we will be left with 11 people following Jesus. So 20,000 On day one and then day two, at the end of day two, 11 people following Jesus. As one commentator says, this chapter ends on a note of failure. It looks like Jesus' ministry has failed. And we've already talked about how Jesus himself says that's not possible since the Father's going to draw. And when the Father draws, those people will come and, and we'll never lose one of them. So we know that this is not a failed mission. But I want us to dive into this section as if we were one of Jesus's 12 disciples, listening to the crowds, listening to Jesus' words, and being asked the question that Jesus asks his 12 disciples. So let's put ourselves in the shoes, the sandals of the crowd. Let's put ourselves in the sandals of the disciples, and let's listen to these words as if this is the first time that we are hearing them along with the crowds and the disciples. John chapter 6, verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So he who eats me will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing the words that i have spoken to you are spirit and our life but there are some of you who do not believe because jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him so he was saying for this reason i have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the father as a result of this many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he was one of the twelve, and he was going to betray Jesus. Father, as we have taken our time through this passage, through this chapter, as we've seen narratives that we've seen so many times before, of Jesus feeding the 5,000, walking on the waters, we've enjoyed those moments. And then we've seen harder realities, harder words to hear and receive and accept, God, I don't know where all of our souls are before you. Whether in this moment we're like the disciples. No, you have the words of eternal life. They're hard words, but I believe them, I receive them, I accept them, and I will follow you. Or whether we're more like the crowds. These are hard words, and I don't know if I want to believe. I don't know if I want to follow. God, you know. You know our hearts, and so I pray that as your word is Preached, your spirit would be pleased to show us the gracious, compassionate, beautiful, majestic, glorious Savior behind these hard words. And that because we trust Him and His goodness and treasure and cherish Him above all things, the words that He says to us this morning would not be considered hard to understand or hard to receive we would bow the knee and trust them because we trust you. Therefore, we must trust your words. Spirit, clarify these thoughts. Give us the gift of illumination and do what you love to do. Show us Christ this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. For the sake of our time this morning, just three points for an outline here. We have the offer of the Savior. The offer of the Savior, verses 52 through 59. We have the rejection of the crowds. They're going to hear the Offer and reject it. That's verses 60 through 66. And then we have the belief of the disciples, verses 67 through 71. So, number one, the offer of the Savior. We've heard this offer before. This is a little bit differently stated. Verse 52 the Jews began to argue. Your Bibles might say dispute. This is escalating. Um, They were grumbling in verse 41. They were murmuring or grumbling, which means among themselves. They're kind of wrestling and questioning these things among themselves. But Verse 52, they're disputing with one another. Now they're arguing against these words. They were questioning these words, and now they're going to set up a case against these words and say, I will not believe these words. What are they arguing against? That Jesus said that you need to eat my flesh. I'm going to give my flesh, and if anyone eats of this bread, which is my flesh, you're going to live forever. Verse 51. So they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, you and I know... What Jesus is meaning, he's not meaning eat my flesh. We know that he's not meaning cannibalism here. But we've all been there where because of how we feel, we are going to hear a certain way. We're going to hear a certain thing. And so what Jesus says, the crowd is going to hear a certain way because of how they feel. The disciples are going to hear the exact same statements a different way because of how they feel. Our emotions and what we bring to the table changes the way that we hear things. And I think that these crowds ultimately know Jesus is not saying, eat my physical body. But my question is, then Jesus, why didn't you explain that? Why did you go this route of hard words? These words are hard. They're going to say that. When they, when they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus is going to offer himself again, and he's going to do it in the hardest way that he's made this offer. He's already made this offer a number of times in this chapter, but he's going to say it this way. Verse t- 53, truly, truly, I say to you, amen and amen. This is the truth. He's going to say a negative statement and a positive statement. They're the exact same statement, only... Uh, the negative and the positive of it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. So you cannot have life unless you do this. And then here's the offer. Verse 54 said positively, whoever eats my flesh, anyone, come to me, eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. We've seen that phrase, raise him up on the last day. I'm not going to lose him. I'm going to keep him. He's mine. We've seen that a number of times. So negatively, if you don't do this, you will die. You won't have life. But if you do this, you will have eternal life and I'll raise him up. Why? How? Verse 55, because my flesh is true food. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Not true as opposed to false, but true as opposed opposed to um, natural and ultimately death giving. Remember, he's been comparing himself to manna. Uh, To the bread that he made, the bread that I gave you, the physical bread, will satisfy you for a moment, but I will satisfy you eternally. So the true bread means if you eat of me, I am bread that will satisfy you and keep you alive for all of eternity. And if you don't eat of me and you eat of the physical bread, not that it's false bread, but it's natural bread, it won't give you eternal life. It won't give you eternal life. Verse 56 He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. This is a beautiful picture of what it looks like. If we were were to say, Jesus, how do you eat your flesh? How do you drink your blood? What does that look like? Because that is a hard statement. That's confusing. What does it look like? Well, I think the byproduct of it is going to be abiding in Christ. And you could go to John 15. Just write down. We don't have time to do this. But John 15 Abiding in Christ means two things that you love Jesus and you keep his commandments. If you keep his commandments, that means that you love him. You must love him to keep his commandments. So, abiding in Jesus in John 15 is loving Jesus and obeying what he says. Also, write down 1 John 2, verse 24, which just says, If you abide in the words that I've spoken to you, the words that I've spoken to you are true, and if you abide in those words, then you will also abide, remain, be stuck in the Savior. He won't let you go. So if we were to ask Jesus, how do you do this? What does it mean to do this? We can understand how this is offensive to a Jewish culture, correct? Uh, To a Jewish culture, I mean, just cannibalism, we have that understanding. Forget about being Jewish. That's, I mean, to everyone, this is a very weird statement. But I think Jesus pushes it a little bit further because he says, you also have to drink my blood. And to a Jewish person, you never eat meat that even has blood still in it. You have to get all the blood out of it. So Jesus isn't just saying, eat my flesh that has blood in it. He's saying, you have to drink my blood. These are offensive words. These are hard words. So how do we do this? How are we to eat the flesh of Christ? How are we to drink his blood? If I can say it this way, we we did this with verse 35. Actually, turn there. Turn to verse 35. I think verse 35 answers it. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, and we could say eats me, will not hunger. And he who believes in me, or we could say drinks my blood, will never thirst. We already covered this when we went through that verse. But coming to Jesus and believing him in in a way that you are eating his flesh and drinking his blood, not literally, but spiritually, is believing on Jesus for all that God has promised to be for us in Christ. We talked about being satisfied in Jesus above all things, and that would fit this picture of if you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, verse 56, then you abide in me and I in him. That fits being satisfied in Jesus above all things, because when we're not satisfied in Jesus, we're turning to sinful things. We're saying, you know what, this will satisfy me more than you can. And if we Live in sin, we are not keeping commandments, we're not loving God, and therefore we're not abiding in Him. So, how does this all work? There's another parallel that I think is very helpful. Back in verse 54 He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Go back to verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. If you put those two verses on top of each other, they have three parallel statements. The last statement is, I will raise him up on the last day, end of verse 40, end of verse 54, I will raise him up on the last day. The middle statement is, he will have eternal life. Both of them say that. The first statement in verse 40 says, everyone who beholds and believes in Jesus will have eternal life, and I will raise him up. In verse 54, he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and then it parallels those, will have eternal life, and um, I will raise them up on the last day. So if we put it all together, eating Jesus' flesh is believing on him, beholding him, being satisfied in him. Drinking his blood is believing in him, beholding him, being satisfied in him. Or as Augustine said, believe and you have eaten. Believe, and you have eaten. If you want to eat, if you want to fulfill this command, live out this command, believe in Jesus. Now, the Jews themselves, if you drop down to verse 60, they know what Jesus is saying because they say, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Um, Difficult is uh, the Greek word scleros, where we get multiple sclerosis from. Hard, uh, um, unflexible, rigid. It's not, these words are hard to understand. It's these words are hard to listen to and believe and receive. And that's why they say, who can listen to it? The word listen, akuo in the Greek, it means listening with a goal to to do what is said. Listening to obey. So they're not saying, we don't understand what you're talking about, Jesus. They're saying, we understand, but it's hard to obey what you're telling us to do. It's hard to obey what you're telling us to do. Why is it hard to obey what Jesus is telling them to do? Because Jesus is saying, you either take me and nothing else and you live, or you take me with anything else that you want inside of it and you will die. You cannot have me with other things. It's me alone, exclusively. If you try to eat any other bread, you will not be satisfied and you will die. You must come to me. Exclusivity, you must come to me. How is he going to give us life? Verse 57, As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. I have life eternal. I am eternal, so therefore I can give life eternal. This is the bread, verse 58, which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Again, we've seen that statement twice already. This is different bread. Your fathers ate the manna. You just want manna, but your fathers are dead. I give you eternal life. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. It's an offer. This offer of Jesus is a universal offer. Once again, whoever, 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 whoever comes to me, whoever eats of me. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying all the way back in verse 51, I'm going to give my life and you need to eat of my flesh and drink my blood. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying is I am going to die as a sacrifice for you and you need to believe on that sacrifice alone to be saved. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. I'm dying in your place, and so therefore you must come to me and love me and nothing else. So his offer is given, but number two, the crowds are going to reject him. Verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, say, this is difficult. This isn't hard to understand. It's hard to swallow. Who can listen to it? Who can obey it? Why are they taking offense? Why are they finding this hard to accept? Let me give you four reasons why I think that they found it hard to accept. Number one, Jesus claimed to be God. He keeps on saying, I came from heaven. I came from heaven. My father, my father, I came from heaven. They don't like the idea that Jesus is claiming to be God. That's hard to believe. This man is God. We don't want to believe that. Number two, they don't want to believe. If Jesus claims to be the Messiah and he says the way that you are saved is by me dying, that doesn't fit in a Jewish paradigm. Being saved is dependent upon the Messiah dying that doesn't fit. Being saved, being dependent upon the Messiah dying does not fit. Number three, that being saved is dependent upon the Father drawing you, not what you do. That's offensive. So wait, you're telling me that I don't have any part ultimately, which is not what he's saying because he says you need to come, you need to believe, you need to behold. But you can hear it that way if you want to. And the crowds are hearing it that way. Just say, well, I have no part in this. I might as well just give up. And I believe that many of the crowds, uh, many of the people in the crowds are doing that. And then number four, obviously the terminology of eating and drinking. Jesus could have said it a different way. So my question is, why didn't you? And of the 16 commentaries that I read this week, not one of them even addressed that. So I was not helped whatsoever (laughs) by anyone else in this. Nobody wanted to take this on. Why did Jesus? He could have said it differently. Number one, I think he already did. Why does he say it this way? We, we studied the, the parables in Family Bible Hour. There was something that happened right before the parables. You guys remember what it is? Right before the parables, Jesus had never spoken in parables, and then something happens, and then he starts speaking only in parables. The thing that happens is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, determined disbelief. No matter what you do, we will not believe. And so Jesus starts speaking in these parables explicitly. He tells his hearers, his disciples, I'm telling you this so that those who don't want to hear will continue to refuse me, to not believe in me. But those who do want to hear will receive what I'm saying. A parable was a story that was able for somebody who... Wondered, maybe Jesus is the Messiah, but I think he's crazy and I don't want to follow him. As Jesus is walking and says, Hey, there was a man, and the man found a treasure in the field and he sold everything that he had to buy the field and have a nice day. People go, Yeah, he's crazy. I thought he was crazy. I I figured it, it was true and they can walk away. He says something that gives them further ammunition to say, I don't want to believe in you. But to somebody who says, I want to believe in you, the parable is said and they go, What does that mean? That makes no sense to me. And it does seem like you're crazy, but I know you're not crazy. You are the son of God. And so I'm going to press through the craziness of that statement. And I'm going to say, would you teach me? And that's what Jesus did. I believe that this is similar to that. Jesus knows that these crowds have determined in their heart they they will not believe. No matter what you say, we're not believing that you are the son of God. We're not believing in you. And so Jesus makes a statement that's hard to swallow, that's hard to stomach, so that those who don't want to believe him, though they know exactly what he's saying, they say, see, we told you he's crazy, he's a cannibal, he's a cannibal, he's crazy, let's move on. And to a disciple who says, I believe you're the son of God, they will say, that's a crazy statement. I don't know what to do with it, but I know you. I trust you. I trust your character, and therefore I'm going to press into those words, and you're going to have to explain those to me. I think that's why Jesus does what he does. He purposely goes the route of harder words so that he will polarize the crowd yet again. So they say it's difficult. Who can listen to it? Verse 61, Jesus, conscious, aware that his disciples grumbled at this, not just his 12 disciples, but all of those who were following Him, The word disciple in in John can refer to the 12 disciples. It can refer to crowds, just like uh, faith can refer to saving belief and unsaving belief in the Gospel of John. Jesus is aware of it. The word there has a a connotation of sovereignly aware of it, though I'm sure he's physically aware of it too, because they're murmuring and grumbling and complaining. And he says, does this cause you to stumble? Um Scandal, the, the Greek word. Does this cause a scandal in your mind? Is this scandalous to you? What is this? Um, that I am the only hope of eternal life. I'm the only way. Uh, the Father draws. You need to humble yourself. All that he said, does all of this cause you to stumble? Is it all a scandal in your mind? What about this? Verse 62. What if, what if you were to see me go back into heaven? If you were to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before, would you believe then? And the answer is no. Um, Jesus, in the, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, uh, the rich man dies, goes to hell and says, would you send Lazarus back? Because surely if, if he is raised from the dead and tells the people, they'll believe. And Jesus says, they won't believe a dead man who's been raised if they don't believe the word of God. It happened with Jesus, right? Jesus rose from the dead. The Pharisees knew that Jesus rose from the dead and they go, let's get a cover up because we've got to make a story that's going to go into the masses so that people don't believe that he rose even though we know he rose. They will not believe that he is the son of God. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits you nothing. Again, to the crowds, this would be offensive. This is going back to John 3. The spirit gives life. What did your flesh contribute to your natural birth? Nothing. So too, the spirit is the only one that can contribute to your spiritual birth. You don't contribute that initiation, that birthing. You don't do anything in that. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. The words that I've spoken. So the spirit gives you life. The spirit alone gives you life. Which again, just like he did with the Father. Remember, the Father draws. You can't do anything. You need to hear. You need to learn. You need to be taught of the Father. And the question is, okay, where's the Father? How can we hear from the Father? And he says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you hear my words, you hear the Father's words. It's me who's the representative of that. He's doing the same thing here. The Spirit gives life. And so our question might be, okay, where's the Spirit? Remember John 3 says, the Spirit blows like the wind. We don't know where it's going, where it's come from. We can't see it. We can't sense it. We don't know. So then how can we ask the spirit to give us life? How can we do that? How does the spirit give us life? And Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. They're spiritual, meaning these aren't literal words. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. They're spiritual words. They're an analogy. They're figurative. But they are what can give you life. So we can't see the spirit. We don't know where he's blowing. We don't know where he's going. But we can hear words. We can hear words. We can't hear the Spirit. We can hear words. And the words give life. Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So, my words, Jesus is saying, give life. Verse 64, but there are some of you who don't believe. Some of you don't believe. I've been speaking and you still will not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were in the crowd, his disciples who would not believe, and who was going to betray him, probably from the beginning of their following. That's probably the the reference in the beginning. Knew from the beginning of their following him who was truly saved and who was not. And he was saying, verse 65, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. I'm preaching, you're not believing, you're not believing, and you haven't been granted by the father but you wouldn't even want to go if the father granted it right now because you're hard of heart you're this is causing you to stumble as we talked about earlier and again john chapter 6 is one whole big message but as we talked about earlier jesus says if you would humble yourself then you can do the will of the father you can do the will of the father the rejection of the crowds. Everything that we have seen thus far in this chapter shows us what it means to be a false disciple of Jesus Christ. They love the supernatural. They're focused only on temporal earthly benefits. They're indifferent to worshiping God. They just want to seek personal satisfaction. They demand things of God. God's their butler instead of them being God's slave. They are self-centered. They have no desire to embrace Jesus as their greatest treasure, as what they desire to live for above all things. That's not what they want. And when Jesus says, I have something else to tell you, you can only have me if you want life, nothing else, they're going to say, no, we don't want it. They're unwilling to embrace the cross, and so they leave. They're unwilling to embrace substitutionary atonement. They're unwilling to embrace Jesus exclusively, so they leave. But note this, and this is crucial. It was never the works of Jesus It was never the works that Jesus did that got them to a place where they said, we're leaving. Never. All the works made them say, I want to get closer. And then Jesus speaks and they say, I don't want any part. It wasn't Jesus's works. It was Jesus's words that pushed people away. It was Jesus's words that pushed people away. And verse 66, as a result of this, Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with Jesus anymore. From that point forward, he lost all of these followers. John six sixty six. Uh, I remember learning this in college that this is you know 666, the number of the beast, the number of the devil. This is the devil's verse. People walking away after hearing Jesus' words and saying, I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe that. Why didn't they want to believe Jesus? They didn't want to believe Jesus. Because their preconceived ideas of how they get to God did not fit with what Jesus was saying. I can do something. I can be something. I can work hard. I can try hard. I'm really not that bad. All of their preconceived ideas, Jesus obliterates all of them. And they say, no, you don't fit in my world. You don't fit. Uh, You don't fit in my paradigm. I don't like the way you're talking. I think you're too harsh. I think you need to be softer. Whatever it is, they say we don't want to listen. And so they leave. What's interesting is, Jesus is going to turn to Peter and ask him, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter's going to say, no, you have the words of eternal life. The very thing that pushed people away is the very thing that drew the disciples in. The exact same thing. These are hard sayings, as I said last week. When we get into the sovereignty of God, especially in salvation, these are hard sayings. We're not in a hurry, by the way, again, as leadership Uh, The elders uh, of this church, we're not in a hurry for you. You must believe this. You must know. We're not in a hurry. This takes time to understand these things, to fully believe and receive these things. And ultimately, these things are not um, salvific issues. You know, If you stand before God and He says, do you believe that I'm sovereign in salvation? And you say, I don't know. I'm really struggling with that one. Well, you're not saved. No. Everyone who gets saved at the moment they get saved, probably thinks, I'm the one that did this. I chose to follow Jesus. And then the more they walk with Jesus, the more they go, oh, I never would have picked Jesus if it hadn't been for the Father pulling me to himself. So we're not in a hurry, but I will say this. I believe that it's my job as a pastor to preach the word of God. And that's why we we preach expositionally. We just go line by line. We go verse by verse. We preach the point of the text so that we're not picking and choosing. The, The opposite might be topical, um we don't pick and choose because this is a hard topic. These are hard words. Even at the beginning of John six, we had some great sermons that were fun and, and felt a little bit easier and, and were very comforting. And then we get into these three sermons that are this is hard stuff. But I believe it's my job as a pastor to preach every word that Jesus says because it's his words that give eternal life. So if I'm just preaching what I want to preach, only the easy stuff, only the comfortable stuff, and we never tackle difficult issues, then I'm not giving you the whole counsel of God. I'm not letting Jesus speak the words of eternal life to you. And just as these words did thousands of years ago to offer life and to bring life to people's souls, so too they will bring life to your soul if you will receive them. If you will receive them, they will bring life. So... We've seen the offer that Jesus makes, ultimately, of substitutionary atonement. Have me and nothing else. We've seen the rejection by the crowds. And I would just ask you this morning, in, in humility of heart, do you see these words that Jesus is saying as a stumbling block, as a rock of offense, or as a rock of refuge? Be honest with yourself. Again, if you say, you know what, this is a, a rock of stumbling for me, that's Okay. But just as Jesus proclaimed these words and some people left, Jesus might be proclaiming these words again here this morning. And some people, you might be here thinking, I don't, I don't like it, I don't want it, I, I want out. Even before these words have been spoken, maybe in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you might be thinking, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought this was going to be different. I thought this was going to be easier. I didn't think you were going to demand so much of me. I I don't know if I want this. I would just plead with you, don't get stuck right now. Don't get stuck in this moment. It's easy to get stuck in these words. It's easy to get stuck in your relationship with Jesus and say, like the crowds, you say some hard things, you say some weird things, you say some very demanding things. I I don't know if if I'm in this anymore. I would just plead with you. Listen to Peter's words where he says, we've tried everything else. Where else are we going to go? But if you feel like turning away from Jesus today, I would just plead with you, don't make a decision like the crowds did based on how you feel. Press through your feelings to the word of God and ask others to come alongside you. Those who you know love Jesus and say, I follow him. Help them to help you press in. Let them help you do that. And Lord willing, Jesus' sovereignty, God's sovereignty in your life will ultimately become a rock of refuge for, for you and not a stone of stumbling. Number three, the belief of the disciples. We'll just end here. Verse 67, so most of the disciples are withdrawing away, the false disciples, and they're not walking with Jesus anymore. So Jesus turns to the twelve We don't have a tone of voice here, but I take this tone of voice to be extremely sad and also testing. You want to go away too? What are you going to do with the words that I just said? The words that I just said made some people absolutely repulsed by me. What are you going to do with my words? How are you going to take them? He said harsh words so that his false disciples would have ammunition to leave And he said hard, harsh words so that his true disciples would be tested to press through them and say, I believe you, I'm struggling with this, but I will follow you. So he's asking, what are you going to do? I think he asks us that today. What are you going to do? Hard things that you can't understand. What are you going to do? Are you going to trust me? And what do they do? Verse 68, Simon Peter answers and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. The same words that kick these people away, we receive them as life eternal We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have come to know. That's a a phrase for a process of checking things out. So in, in my sanctified imagination, I think this is what Peter has done. Okay, those are hard words. Let's see where else we can go. Okay, let's think about Peter's other options. Can we go to the religious leaders? Well, the religious leaders' words say that you can be right with God on your own based on what you do. Peter says, but we know that that doesn't work because we know we're more sinful than we could possibly imagine. And every time, every time I try to do what's right, I fail. Every time I fail, I try to go back and do what's right, but I can't do what's right. So I keep failing. I keep sinning. I can't get to God on my own. So that doesn't work. Those are not the words of eternal life. What about Greek and Roman philosophy? Multiple gods. They're just like us. We're actually not that bad. We're more like gods and the gods are more like humans. I think Peter would say, no, I've lived with myself enough to know I'm not a god. I am sinful to the core. I need help. What about those who deny God's sovereignty? I'm sure some people, as they're listening to this sermon that Jesus is preaching, say, I don't like that idea of God being in control of every molecule of the universe. I don't want that. I'm out of here. And Peter's thinking, okay, we've done that too. We've walked away from God being in control. But when you walk away from God being in control of everything in the universe, there's no hope. Now everything's just happening by chance. I don't know the one who controls the universe. And if God, by the way, doesn't control every molecule molecule in the universe, he's not worthy of my praise as God because I can do just as good of a job as he's doing if he's just kind of making certain things happen. But, oh, he doesn't know the future. Oh, he doesn't. Can't figure out what's going on. No. As many as find this attractive, this viewpoint of denying God's sovereignty, Peter says, no, whatever problems I have following a sovereign Jesus, this alternative is hopeless. I know my own, own heart, and if God were not decisive calling me in salvation, I wouldn't have come to begin with. So I need a sovereign God to draw me in. Then I can believe. What about those who deny sin? He's probably checked out people that have denied sin. And Peter says, no, it's an unrealistic and naive view of human nature. We know from our own souls and from universal experience that we as human beings don't desire to submit to God's laws. So we can't deny that sin exists. That doesn't work. That worldview doesn't work. What about universalism? Everybody just goes to heaven regardless of what you do with Jesus. Well, that doesn't fit in a picture of justice. God is a God of justice. He is holy. And so if he makes the provision for you to be saved and you say, I don't want that provision. I don't think I'm that bad. God would be unjust to say, well, we'll let you in anyway. Universalism doesn't work. Atheism doesn't work. The world is proof enough. Romans 1, Psalm 19, that God exists. So just like Peter, looking around at the options, I think we do the same thing. And just like Peter, we say, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. No one ever spoke like you, Jesus. No one ever acted like you. No one was ever so strong and so meek at the same time. So tough and so tender, so authoritative and so gentle, so profound and so simple, so powerful and so willing to be killed, so just and so willing to be treated unjustly, so worthy of honor and so willing to be dishonored, so deserving of immediate obedience and so patient with people like us who are disobedient all the time so able to answer every question and so willing to remain silent under abuse, so capable of coming down from the, clo- the cross in flaming judgment and so committed not to use that power but to stay up there so that I would have life. Peter says, we've seen it all. We've tried it all. You are the only one that have the words of eternal life. So where else are we going to go? We've gone to other places, Jesus. That's why you're our hope. And the very same thing that brought offense to the, the crowds, namely that Jesus claimed to be God, Peter asserts and says, you are God. You are the Holy One from God. So why does Jesus end in verse 70 and 71 with Judas? Jesus says, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Why does he end with Judas? Why doesn't he just say, yes, that's who I am? Um, Praise the Father that he showed that to you, and we're done with six. We're done with chapter 6. I mean, John ends it here. We're done. This is it. Why does he end with Judas? Number one, I think inside of what Jesus is saying is remember, Peter, the fact that you said that is only possible because of the Father, John. I chose you all. Uh, that wasn't in a saving way because he chose Judas to be a disciple and Judas wasn't saved. So he says, I chose you all, but he's reminding Peter the Father's the one that chose you and drew you. The Father's the one that chose you and drew you. But number two, and I think this is the point of chapter 6, in seeing unbelief on, an, on a wide scale, is yet again to be reminded that though it looks like failure, Jesus is not failing. Whenever it appears that Jesus is failing, that his promises are not coming true in your life, you say, God, I thought that if I followed you, this would happen, this would happen. It's not happening. What are you doing this is when we need a clear vision of God's sovereignty, a robust understanding of God's sovereignty more than ever. And so I think that's why Jesus is saying, I drew, I chose, the Father drew, didn't draw him. It's God being sovereign. It's God being sovereign. Ultimately, the, the devil is going to use Judas. And Jesus says, I know that. There's nothing that surprises me. I picked him because I knew he was going to do that. The devil is powerful, more powerful than all of us. The devil knows more than we know. He's not omniscient, but he knows more than we know. The devil hates us more than we could possibly imagine. But we have nothing to fear. The devil is on a leash. And it's a very short leash held in the hand of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who says, you can go. No, you can't. You can go. No, you can't. Jesus is the one who allows, ordains, permits. Jesus holds the devil and uses him. We don't have any reason to be afraid of the devil. And I think he's finishing up saying, it looks like the devil's won the day. Oh, but he hasn't. I've got him right here in my my hand. I've got a leash. He's not allowed to do anything outside of my sovereign power. Jesus makes an offer of substitutionary atonement. He makes it to us today. Believe in me. Come to me. You'll have life eternal. The crowd's rejected, and I'm sure we've all been, I know I have, been at places in my life where I just say, I think I've had enough. And that's where we need to press into Jesus. Trust him, his character, his his heart. Trust him and press into those words and trust that he has a purpose and he has a promise for you. And finally, The belief of the disciples brings us to a place at the end of this chapter where if we were them, I mean, just picture yourself asking Peter at the end of this moment. Jesus has just said, out of the 12, one of you is a devil, so only 11. All of them have left, 11 have stayed. And Jesus says, and I'm going to flood the world with my message. And you ask Simon, you ask Andrew, you ask Matthew, and you say, Um, do you believe that's possible? I think that they would say, well, anything's possible with God, but man, it doesn't look like it. And on that day, 20,000 dwindles down to 11, and it looks like failure. And Jesus says, no, no failure, no failure. Trust me. The disciples trust, and 11 blows up. Around the world to billions now that have heard of Jesus, love him, and are in the kingdom. 20,000 to 11 that day, and then 11 to billions that love Jesus. So, I would say to us, to CBC, preach the word. Say what Jesus said. Let his words reverberate everywhere you go. Be faithful, and let's see what Jesus will do with our little band of disciples as we preach the message of the gospel in the world around us. Father, thank you for your amazing grace that we've seen all throughout this chapter. Thank you that we were able to look at the sovereignty of God in salvation, look at the drawing, look at the human responsibility and how they are not incompatible. And so we just pray now that you would give us eyes to see you, to see more of who you are, that our anxious hearts would be stilled by knowing your your heart, your character, and by loving you all the more because of your amazing grace towards us. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Give me a light.